Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, And in today's episode, I'm doing, I guess you could call it a bit of an encore presentation, but this is an interview that I did with Dr. Sarah Haig a couple of months ago for JOSPT, which is the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. So at the start of the pandemic, editor-in-chief Dr. Claire Ardern uh, was very innovative, and she started these weekly JOSPT Asks interview series on Facebook. And for one of the interviews, she generously allowed me to interview the wonderful Sarah Haig, all about pelvic health, really for the non-pelvic health PT. And so if you want to see this interview live, well, recorded live, but you could see Sarah and I, you could see our faces, then head over to the JOSPT page on Facebook, which is JOSPT Official. And you can see not only the interview that Sarah and I did, but all of the interviews from the JOSPT Ask series. And there are amazing interviews on all sorts of different topics from concussion to hips to low back to ACLs. Definitely check it out. Uh, Claire and JOSPT did a wonderful job curating the JOSPT Asks series. And I am very thankful to Claire and to JOSPT and to Sarah that they allowed me to do this interview and is allowing me to put it up here on the podcast. Um, So again, if you haven't seen any of the JOSPT Asks series, go onto Facebook and watch them all because they're all amazing. You'll come away with great pearls of wisdom that you can take to your practice. If you're a student, it is a wealth of knowledge, so check it out. Now, a little bit more about Dr. Sarah Haig. So Sarah is the co-owner of Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness located in Chicago, Illinois. She graduated from Marquette University in 2002 with a master's of physical therapy. She has then gone on to get her doctor of physical therapy and master's of science in women's health from Rosalind Franklin University. In 2009, she was awarded a board certification as a specialist in women's health. She also completed a certification in mechanical diagnosis therapy from the McKenzie Institute. She has completed a 200-hour yoga instructor training program and is now a registered yoga teacher. And she was also awarded the Certificate of Achievement in Pelvic Physical Therapy from the Section on Women's Health, which is part of the American Physical Therapy Association. Sarah has lectured around the world and teaches classes all about women's and men's pelvic health. So it's a great episode, everyone. Enjoy. Okay, welcome everyone to JOSPT Asks. Um, Hello and welcome, dear listeners. This is JOSPT Asks, the weekly chat where you, the audience, get your questions answered. My name's Claire Ardern. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of JOSPT, and it's really great to be chatting with you this week. Before we get to our guest, I'd like to say a big thanks for the terrific feedback that we've had since launching JOSPT Asks a week ago. We really appreciate your feedback. So please um, let us know if there's a guest that you'd like to hear from or if you have some ideas for the show. Today we're in for a very special treat because not only are we joined by Dr. Sarah Haig from Entropy Physio, But guest hosting JOSPT Asks today is Dr. Karen Litzy, who you might know from the Healthy, Wealthy and Smart podcast. Dr. Litzy is also a New Yorker, and I think I can speak for many of us when I say that New York has been front of mind recently with the coronavirus pandemic. And I'd like to extend our very best wishes to everyone in New York. We're we're thinking of you. So I'm going to throw to Karen now, um, where I'm really looking forward to our chat today on pelvic floor incontinence and exercise. Over to you, Karen. Hi, everyone. Claire, thank you so much. I really appreciate your giving me the opportunity to be part of JOSPT Asks live stream. So I'm very excited about this. And I'm also very excited to talk with Dr. Sarah Haig. Sarah is 
an educator, a clinician, and an author. She is also co-owner of Entropy Wellness and or Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago, Illinois, and is also a good friend of mine. So it's really a, a, an honor for me to be on here. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. I was really excited that all this came together so beautifully. Yes, and and again, like Claire had mentioned, we're all experiencing some pretty unprecedented times at the moment, and the hope of these uh, JOSPT Asks live streams is to continue to create that sense of community among all of us, even though we can't be with each other in person, but we can at least do this virtually. And as Claire said uh, last week, we want to acknowledge our frontline healthcare workers and colleagues uh, across the world for their dedication and care to those in need. And again, like Claire said before, a special shout out to my New York City colleagues. We are, uh, they are really uh, working like no other. And I also want to acknowledge not just our healthcare colleagues and workers, but the scientists, the grocery store workers, the truck drivers, uh, the pharmacists, police, firefighter, paramedics, they're all working at full capacity to keep the wheels turning around the world. So I just want to acknowledge them as well and uh, thank them for all of their hard work during this time. Okay, so like Claire said, today we're going to be talking about the pelvic floor, which is something Sarah uh, loves to talk about because what I also I also failed to mention is she is a certified pelvic health uh, practitioner so through the American Physical Therapy Association. So uh, she is perfectly positioned to take us through. And as a lot of you know, we had you had the opportunity to go on to Slido to ask questions. You can still do that even throughout this uh, talk. Just use the uh, code pelvic, that's P-E-L-V-I-C and ask some questions. So we do have a lot of questions. I don't know if we're gonna to get to all of them. So if we don't, then certainly post them in the Facebook chat and maybe Sarah can uh, find those questions in the chat below and we'll try and get to those questions after the recording has finished. All right, Sarah, so like I said, lots of questions. And the way the questions were, were written out kind of corresponds quite well with maybe how you would see a patient in the clinic. So let's start with the patient comes into your clinic, they sit down in front of you. Let's talk about the words we would use in that initial evaluation. So I'll throw it over to you. Okay, so being a pelvic health therapist, obviously most people when they're coming to see me know things that happen in the pelvis. I like to acknowledge is that there's a lot of things happening in the pelvis. So I have them tell me kind of what are the things that, that have been bothering them or what are the things that have been happening that indicate something might be going on. Like if something's hurting, if they're experiencing incontinence, any bowel issues, any sexual dysfunction. Um, and, and I kind of go from there. So if the talk, the, the title of the talk today includes incontinence, incontinence is a super common issue that see in general might pop in and if you would bother to ask there's I think it's like one out of two people over 60 are experiencing incontinence of some kind um, the answer is going to be yes some so you can start asking more questions um, but starting out with what what is bothering them is really what I like to start with then the next thing we need to know is um, after we have that, that issue or that priority list of things that are bothering them um, in the pelvis, and it's not uncommon actually to have, so let's say they start with the discussion of incontinence. I still actually ask about sexual function, any pain issues, any bowel issues, just based on the innervation of the area, the anatomical arrangement of everything. It's not uncommon to have more than one issue but those other issues might not be um, bothersome enough to mention. So it's kind of nice to get that full picture. Then the next thing we really want to start. So there are times I've met women who um, come in and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I have incontinence. And you're like, okay, so when did it start? And they're like 25 years ago. Okay. 
<laughs> do you remember remember what happened then? Typically it was a baby. Um, but sometimes these women will notice that their incontinence didn't happen until like four or five years after the baby. Hmm. So that's information that's very helpful. If they say, my baby that was born six weeks ago, our interventions and expectations are going to be very different than someone who's been having incontinence for 25 years. Um, so again, knowing how it started and when it happens, when the issues are happening, I just kind of let them, it's like a free text box on a form, like just, they can tell me so much more. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And when we are talking about things, we, I do talk anatomy. So when it comes to incontinence, I talk about the bladder and the detrusor, the smooth muscle around the bladder, the urethra, the, um, basically the hose that takes the urine from the bladder to the outside world. I do talk about the vagina and the vulva and the difference between the two. Um, and then actually we do talk about like the anus and the anal sphincters and how all of that is, um, is all there together and supported by the pelvic floor. Cause that's in physical therapy. It's going to be something with that pelvic floor or something throughout. Does it need to be more, more pelvic floor focused? Or does it need to be behaviorally focused, which is the case sometimes? Or is it that kind of finding that perfect Venn diagram of both for those issues that the person's having? And let's say you're in a part of the world. Uh, one of the questions was, what if you're, uh, I think this question came from Asia. And they said, what if you're in part of the world where you have to be a little bit maybe more sensitive? around even the words that you use. Uh, I know we had gotten a question a couple of years ago about a woman in the southern part of the United States that was from a very conservative area. And do we even use these words with these patients? So what is your response to that? My response is that as healthcare providers, we are responsible, I think, for educating people and using appropriate words and making sure people understand the anatomy um, like where things are and what they're supposed to be doing. Um, however, definitely when I'm having this conversation with someone, um, I want them to feel at ease. So like I will use the anus, vagina, anus, anal sphincters, um, vulva. Not It's not a vagina, it's a vulva if it's on the outside. Um, but then if they use different terms to refer to the anatomy we're discussing, I'm happy to code switch over to what they're most comfortable with um, because they need to be comfortable. But I think as, as again, healthcare practitioners, if we're not comfortable with the area, we're not gonna make them feel very comfortable about discussing those issues. Right, and that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. So now let's say you, the person kind of told you what's going on and let's, let's talk about, um, when you're taking the history for women with incontinence, especially after pregnancy, are there key questions you like to ask? Yes. Yeah, so my, my gals that I'm seeing, especially when they're relatively, um, uh, relatively early in the postpartum period, are the things I'm interested in is, did they experience this incontinence during their pregnancy? And did they have issues before pregnancy? Um, and then also, if this is not their first tell me about the first birth or, the, or the, the first two births or the first three births to really get an idea of, um, is this a new issue or is this kind of an ongoing mark by the, um, so kind of getting a bigger picture of the, this. and then also um, that most recent birth. We wanna know, was it vaginal? Was it C-section? With vaginal births, um, if there's instrumentation used, so if they needed to use forceps or a vacuum, that increases the likelihood that the pelvic floor went over, went under a bit of trauma, um, and possibly that resulted in a larger lacer. Um, and even if there isn't muscles, it's understandable that things might not work well if it's really swollen, <laughs> if it's still healing. Um, you know, different, different things like that. So understanding the, the kind of like the recent birth story, as well as their bladder story going back um, to even that first baby or before that first baby 
um, so that we know where, where we're starting from. Um, and the, the reason why I do that is because, again, if it's a long-term issue, we have to acknowledge the most recent event and also understand there was something else happening that, that we need to kind of look at. Um, so would I expect it all to magically go away? No, I wouldn't. There's probably something else we need to figure out. But if it's like, nope, this onset happened of my baby three months ago, it's been happening since then. Three months is seems like forever and is also no time whatsoever. It took 10 months to make the baby. So it's, um, you know, if you tear your hamstring, we're expecting you to start feeling better in three months, but you're probably not back to your peak performance. So where are we in that? Um, and sometimes time will cure things, things will continue to heal, but also that would be a time like, how good are things working? Is there something else going on that maybe we could facilitate or have them reach continence a bit sooner? Okay, great. And do you also ask questions around uh, if there was any trauma to the area? So if this birth was, uh, for example, the product of, of a rape or of uh, some other type of trauma, is that a question that you ask or do you, is that something that you hope they bring up? Um, it's, that's honestly for me in my practice, something I try to leave all of the doors wide open um, for them to, to share that. In my experience, um, you know, I've worked places where it is on, it's on the questionnaire that they fill out from the front desk and they'll circle no to, to any sort of trauma in the past. Yeah, they, they don't want to circle yes on that form. Um, so, I, um, and also, I kind of treat everybody like they might have something in their past, right? So very non-judgmental, very safe place, always making them as comfortable and as safe as possible. And, and I will say that if there's anything I can do to make you feel more comfortable or more safe, we can do that. Um, and if you don't feel safe and comfortable, we're not doing this. We, we, we're going to do something else. Because um, you're right, that that's always one of those lingering things and the statistics on abuse and, and rape are horrifying um, to the point where, again, in my practice, I kind of assume that everybody has the possibility of having something in their past. Okay, great. Thank you. And now uh, another question that's shifting gears. Another question uh, that came up that I think is definitely worthy of an answer is, what outcome measures or tools might you use with, uh, with your incontinence patients? So with incontinence, honestly, my favorite is like an, an oldie, but a goodie, but a goodie. like just, it's, it's an IC, it's the um, international continence um, questionnaire where it's, I think it's five or six questions. Um, just simple, like how often does this happen? When does it happen? Um, there's a couple of other outcome measures that do cover uh, like your bladder's not empty. Are you having feelings of pressure in your lower abdomen? Um, it gets into some bowel and, and more um, genital function. Can you repeat that? Because it kind of froze oh. up for a second. So could you repeat okay. the name of uh, that outcome tool as it relates to the bladder and out output? Did you oh, so kind of cut off? Oh, sorry. So That's the okay. ICIQ is one, and then but like ICIQ VS with vaginal symptoms, right? So there are there's a lot of different forms out there. Um, another one that will kind of gather up information about a whole bunch of things in the pelvis is the um, pelvic floor distress. Things questions about bowel function, bladder function, sexual function. Um, discomfort from pressure or pain. Um, so that can give you a bigger picture. Um, I'll be honest, sometimes my, the people in my clinic, they're coming in. And even though I will ask the questions about those things, when they get the, the questionnaire with all of these things that they're like, this doesn't apply to me. I'm like, well, that's great that it doesn't apply to you, but they don't love filling, filling it out. Um, so sometimes what I will go with is actually just the pail. Can you say that again, please? How would you, oh, yeah. Oh, so sorry. Um, the patient-specific functional scale, where, where the patient says, this is what I want to have happen. And we kind of figure out where they are, 
talk about what would need to happen to get them there, but it's them telling me what better, right? Because I've had people actually score perfect on some of these outcome measures, but they're still in my office. So it's like, oh. Um, so patient specific is one of my um, one of my kind of go tos. Um, and then there's actually a couple of most of these pelvic questionnaires. Finding one that you like is really helpful because because there's so many, and they're really all or discomfort. Um, so if you have a really good ability to take a really good history, some of the questions on that outcome measure end up being a bit redundant. Um, so I like and you know the questions on there make sure people are filling them out you look at them before you ask them all the questions that they just filled out on the form for you yes good very good advice so then the patient doesn't feel like they're just being piled on with question after question and because that can make people feel uncomfortable when maybe they're already a little uncomfortable coming to see someone for for whatever their problem or dysfunction is so that's a really good point and now Here's a question that came up a couple of times. You know, we're talking about incontinence, we're talking about women, we're talking about pregnancy. What about men? So is this pelvic floor dysfunction, is this incontinence a women-only problem or can it be an everybody problem? So it very much can be an everybody problem. Um, Incontinence in particular for men, the rates for that are much lower. Um, And typically the men are either much older or they are, um, they've undergone um, prostate removal for prostate cancer. Floor plays a role in getting them to be dry or at least drier. Um, and then it's like the pelvic floor is not working right. That can result in pain. It can result in constipation. It can result in sexual dysfunction. It can result in bladder issues. So it's, so yes, Men can have all of those things. Um, in fact, last night we had a great talk in our mentorship group at Entropy about hard flaccid syndrome. So this is um, a syndrome with men where everything is normal when they go get, get tested. No, um, no infections, no cancers, no tumors, no trauma that they can recall. And, but the, the penis is not able to become functional and, and erect. And with a lot of these men, we're finding that it's more of a pelvic floor dysfunction issue, or at least they respond to pelvic floor interventions. Um, So having a pelvic floor that does what it's supposed to, which is contract and relax and help you do the things you wanna do, um, if if we can help people make sure that they're doing that, um, it can resolve a lot of issues. And because men have pelvic floors, they can sometimes have pelvic floor dysfunction. Okay, great. Yeah, that was a very popular question. Is this a, a woman-only thing? So thank you for clearing up that mystery for everyone. Okay, so uh, in going through your evaluation, you've, you've asked all your questions. You're getting ready for your objective exam. What do you do if you're a clinician who does not do internal work? Is there a way to test these pelvic floor muscles and to do things without having to do internal work? My answer for that question is yes, there are things that you can do Um, because even though I do do internal exams, I have um, people who come to see me who are like, no, we're not doing that. So, so where can we start? Um, And so the the first are um, one is pants on and me not even touching you pelvic floor. I wouldn't really call it an assessment self-report. So even just sitting here, if you, if you were to call me up and, and, um, and this actually goes into, I think another question that was on Slido about pelvic floor cues. Um, (laughs) So there's actually been, it seems more research on how to get a male to, to contract his pelvic floor um, than actually females. Um, But I would ask you like, um, like this is one that uh, my friend Julie Weeb would use. So like if you're sitting there, you just sit up nice and tall. If you pretend you're trying to pick up a ruby with your with uh, um, your vagina not on the outside, but imagine like there's just a ruby on the chair and you'd like to pick it up with no hands. Breathe in and breathe out and let it go. 
So then I would go, did you feel anything? And you should have felt something happen or not. So if, if you did it, would you mind telling me what you felt? You're asking me? Oh my goodness. Oh yes, <laughs> I did feel something. So I did feel like I could pick the ruby up and hold it and drop it. Excellent. And that's and that that drop is key. Excellent. So what I would say is this is like um like a plus like a I can't confirm or deny you that you did it correctly, but I like I would have watched you hold your like is she holding her breath? Is she getting taller because she's using her glutes? Did she just do a crunch um, when she tried to do this? I can see external things happening that would indicate you might be working too hard or you might be doing something completely wrong. So then we'll get into, I mean, you said, yes, I felt like I could pick up the ruby, but if it's like, mm, I felt stuff, but I'm not really sure, we would use our words because they've already said no to hands to figure that out. But again, I can't confirm it. People are, they're okay with that. And I'm like, and if what we're doing based on the information you gave me isn't changing, we might go to step two, if you consent. And step two is actually something any orthopedic therapist um, honestly should not feel too crazy doing. So if anyone has ever palpated the origin of a hamstring, so where is the origin of the hamstring? Facial tuberosity. If you go just medial, to that along the inside part. Um, again, don't go square in the middle. That's where everyone gets a little nervous and a little tense. But if you just palpate around that issue of tuberosity, um, it's pretty awesome if you have a, a friend or a colleague who's willing to let this happen, is you ask them to do a more different cues with that in a little bit. Can you say that again? Um, ask them to do oh, what? Um, to contract the pelvic floor. Okay. And again, figuring out the right words so that they know what you're talking about. We, we can talk about that in a minute. But if they do a pelvic floor contraction, you're going to feel kind of like this bulging tension build right there. Maybe pushing your fingers, you should feel it kind of gather under your fingers. It shouldn't like push your fingers away. But then you can be like, well, you could test their hamstring and see that you're not on the hamstring and you can have them squeeze your glutes and you can kind of feel the differences. The pelvic floor is just there at the bottom of the pelvis. Um, so you can palpate externally, even through blue jeans is a bit of a challenge, but if they're in, um, you know, like their workout shorts or yoga pants, it's actually very, very simple. And, and honestly, as long as you explain to them what you're doing and what you're checking for, it's no different than palpating an ischial tuberosity for any other reason. Um, and with that, I tell them that I can, it's more like a plus minus. So I can tell that you contracted and that you let go. That's all I can tell. So I can't tell you how strong you are, how good your relaxation was, how long you could hold it for, any of those things. Um, and then I tell them with an internal exam, we would get a lot of information. We could, we could test left to right. We can, I could give you more of like a muscle grade. Um, so like that zero to five scale we use for other muscles, we can use that for the pelvic floor. I can get a much better sense of your relaxation and see how is that going. And I can even offer some assistance. So, um, so we have two really good options for no touching. And then just as long as we understand the information we might gain from an internal exam, we can, we can, the information we gather from the first two ways isn't sufficient to, to make a change for them. And then as let's say the non-pelvic health therapist, which there might be several who are going to watch this. When do we say, you know something, I think it's time that we refer you to a pelvic health therapist because I do think given what you've said to me and, you know, maybe we did step one and two here of your exams, I think that you need a little bit more. So when do, when is that decision made? You reach the point of they have a bother that I don't know how to address. So um, we can actually go to like the like pelvic organ prolapse. So pelvic organ prolapse is is when the support for um, either the bladder, the uterus, or even the rectum um, starts to be less supportive, and things can kind of start to fall into the vaginal wall and can give a feeling of like pressure in the with activity. The sensation can get 
So then we have two options, um, which is more support from below with perhaps a stronger meteor pelvic floor by like working it out to hypertrophy it. Um, so like if, if I had someone who had that feeling when they were running and we tried a couple or lifting weights, let's go with lifting weights. You know, like I feel it once I get to like a 200 pound deadlift. Okay, well, let's see how you're lifting when you're doing 150 and let's take a look at what you're doing at 200 breath with your mechanics or what's happening and if there's something that is in your wheelhouse where you're like well can you try this breath or can you try it this way and see if that feeling goes away I'm I'm good with that and if the if the person who's having the issue is good with that awesome but if you're trying stuff or the incontinence is not changing send them to a pelvic floor therapist because what we love to do is we can check it out we're going to check it out we're going to give some suggestions and then my, the end of every one of those visits that I get um, from my, from my orthopedic or sports colleagues is I'm like, excellent. So you're going to work on this. Keep doing what you're doing. Because another really common thing is like, is I don't really believe that they can make a lot of these things worse doing the things that they're doing. And by that, I mean, they can become more symptomatic, but in many cases, you're not actually making the situation worse. So if the symptoms seem to be not getting better or even getting worse, doing the things they're doing, they go come back to the pelvic floor therapist. And then that pelvic floor therapist also has a responsibility that, huh, the things I'm asking them to do isn't helping them get better and try something a little more intense, still not helping. Then that's when I actually would refer for females, especially with like pelvic pressure issues to a urogynecologist for an assessment in that regard. Yeah, so I think I heard a couple of uh, really important things there, and that's one, if you are the sports therapist or the orthopedic uh, physiotherapist and you have someone that needs pelvic health support, you can refer them to the pelvic health therapist and you can continue seeing them doing the things you're doing. So just because they're having incontinence or they're having some pressure, let's say it's a pelvin, pelvic organ prolapse, it doesn't mean stop doing everything you're doing. Correct. Okay. Yeah. It may mean modify what you're doing, stop some of what you're doing, listen to the pelvic floor therapist. And I'm also seeing, well, now we're, aren't we, isn't this great? Cause we're creating a great team around this, around this person to help support them in their goals. So one doesn't Absolutely. negate the other. Absolutely correct. And I, and I think too often, um, even, even within the PT world as people start to get kind of territorial, um, but it's not about what each one of us is doing, it's that person, right? Um, so telling them to stop doing something, especially if it's something they love, um, it seems like a bad start. <laughs> if it's like, okay, let's take a look at this. Tell me what you are doing. Tell me what you want to be doing. Tell me what's happening when you do that. And let's see if we can change it. Because um, like I said, like the, the odds of it being something they're going to make worse and worse and worse is their symptoms might get worse and worse and worse, but they're not causing damage. They're not causing what they're doing and say leaking a bit. Got it. And now I'm going to take a slight detour here because you had mentioned pelvic organ prolapse. You had mentioned there comes that time when if that pressure is not relieving, you've tried a lot of different things, you would refer them to a urogynecologist. Now, several years ago, there, so a uro, urogynecologist, one of their treatments might be surgery. So there was pelvic mesh, uh, well, it's hard to say, pelvic <laughs> mesh surgery um, that years ago made some people better and made some people far, far worse with, with uh, some very serious ramifications. So can you talk about that pelvic mesh, sur mesh surgery and where we are now? Oh, the last bit cut out a little bit. So the pelvic mesh, mesh surgery the, and... And, oh, the most important part. And kind of where we are now versus maybe where we were, let's say, a decade ago or so. Awesome. Yeah. So so the pelvic mesh situation, um, certainly here, I think it's not a universal problem. I think it's just a United States problem is if you're at home during the day, like most of us are now, um, you will see law commercials, <laughs> lawyers looking for your business to discuss the mesh situation and... Um, What's happening is there was um, 
there was it was mesh erosion and the, the resulting fact of that was um, a lot of pain and then because the mesh, they couldn't just take it all out and it was several women suffered and are still suffering um, but that was from a, a particular type of surgery with a particular type of surgical kit which thankfully has was removed completely from the market and isn't being used anymore and mesh surgeries i would say at least for the last five to ten years haven't haven't been using that and mesh surgeries are being done with great success in resolving symptoms um, so I think it's important that if a woman isn't responding while changing their breath or making their pelvic floor strong or changing how they're doing things, is to have that discussion with the urogynecologist because they do have non-surgical options um, for super mild prolapse. There are some even like over-the-counter um, options you can buy, um, like Poise has one where it's just a little bit of support that helps you um, actually not leak because if you're having too much movement of the urethra, it can cause stress and or can be um, contributing to stress incontinence. But so there's some over-the-counter things, or there's something called a pessary, which I think about it like um, like a tent pole, but it's not a pole; it's a circle. Don't worry, or a square, or a donut. There's so many different shapes, but it's basically something you put in the vagina and that you can take out of the vagina that just kind of holds everything <laughs> back up where it belongs, so it can work better, and that it's not but there are also people who are like due to hand dexterity or just due to a general discomfort with the idea of putting things in their vagina and leaving them there that they're like no I'd rather just have this be fixed um, so so there are it's not just surgery is not your only option there are lots of options and it just depends on where you want to go um, but with the surgery if that's what's being recommended for a woman I really do um, some women aren't worried at all. They've heard about the mesh, but they're sure it won't happen to them. But there are women who are still avoiding surgery, even with significant syndromes, because they're worried about the mesh situation. And I would still encourage those women to at least discuss, see if that surgeon can, can educate them and give them enough confidence before they move forward with the surgery. Because the worst thing I think is when, I had one patient actually put it off for years, um, not not just because of the mesh, because of a lot of issues, but the first time the doctor recommended it, she had a grade four prolapse. Like that means when things come all the way out. Um, and she, um, it was so bad, she, like she couldn't use a pessary. Okay, so she needed it, but she avoided it until she was ready and had the answers that made her feel confident in that having the surgery was the right thing to do. Um, so it, it might take some time and the doctor, the surgeon really should, and most of them that I've met, are more than happy to make sure that the patient has all the information they need and understand the risk factors, the potential benefits before they move forward. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, indulging that slight detour. <laughs> okay, let's get into interventions. So there are lots of questions on Slido about, about different kinds of interventions. And so let's start with... Um, Lot of lot of uh, questions about transverse abdominis activation. So uh, there is one question here from Chantal. Said studies in patients with specific low back pain uh, do not recommend adding transverse abdominis activation because of protective muscle spasm. What about urinary incontinence in combination? What do you do? So there is a lot on transverse abdominis, as you saw in Slido. So I'll uh, throw it over to you and, and you can give us all your, share your knowledge. <laughs> okay, well, let's all do this together. So I don't know how many people are watching, but if we just sit up nice and tall, uh, and I'm gonna give a, a different cue for the pelvic floor. Um, so what I want you to, um, squeeze like you don't want to urinate, like you want to stop the stream of urine. Okay, so as we're pulling that in, feel anything else other than the underneath contract. What did you feel, Karen? Well, I did feel my TA contract. I felt that lower abdominal muscle wall start to pull in. Um, yes. So, so the 
the way I explain it um, is that the pelvic floor and the transversus are the bestest of friends. And this makes sense when you think about, when you remember the fact that the pelvic floor isn't just there regarding like bowel, bladder, and sexual function. It's one of our posture muscles. So if we're totally like, like slacked out and our abs are off and all of that, our pelvic floor is pretty turned off as well. And then if I get a little bit taller and like, so I'm not really clenching anything, right? But this is like stuff working like it should. My pelvic floor is a little more on, but not, I'm not acting. It's just on. But then I could like, right. If I'm going to, if I'm expecting a hit or, or if I'm going to push into something, I can tense that up more and handle more force into the system. Um, so I like to think about it in those, um, in those three ways, because the pelvic floor isn't just hanging out down there in complete isolation. Um, it's, it's part of a system. Um, and so in my personal, like in my personal approach to interventions is I don't want them to be too complicated. So if I can get someone to contract their pelvic floor, continue to breathe and let go of that pelvic floor, then we start thinking about what else are you feeling? Um, Cause I don't know that there's any evidence that says if I just work my, my transversus all the time, my pelvic floor will automatically come along for the ride. So um, a great uh, quote, I heard Kari Bo speak once at um, combined sections meeting and <laughs> she goes, your biceps turn on when you take a walk. It's not a good bicep exercise. So just the fact we're getting activity in the pelvic floor when we're working other muscles, what's supposed to work. And also, if you want to strengthen that muscle, you're going to need to work out that muscle. And that makes a lot of sense. And something that people had a lot of questions around, we're, we're kind of queuing for these uh, different exercises. And I really love the, and you've made it several times, comparisons to other muscles in the body. So can you talk about maybe what kind of cueing you might use to have someone, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this, turn on, and I use that in quotes <laughs> because that's what you see in, in a lot of like mainstream publications mm -hmm. uh, for, for laymen. So it might be something that our patients may see when they come in. So how do you cue that? Um, to, to turn on the pelvic floor. Um, I, so honestly, I will usually start with floor and I do um, if I'm able to do a pelvic floor exam that's usually again a lot more um, information for me but I'm like okay so do that now and I watch them do it or I feel them do it and I'd be like okay what did you what did you feel move and I, and I start there um, and then I, I always say it's a little bit like I get dropped into a country and I'm not sure what language people are speaking. So sometimes, um, what, excuse me, one of the first cues that I learned was like, so squeeze like you don't want to pass gas. Okay. So everybody, let's try that. So sitting, squeeze like you don't, Karen, you got taller. So I think you did some glutes. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, okay, so like lift, lift your anal sphincter up and in, but activating mostly the back part so if you're having fecal issues maybe that's a good place to start but most people are having issues a little further front so then we move to the can you pick up with your with your labia I had a I learned the best things from my patients one woman said it's like I'm shutting the church doors so if you imagine the labia being church doors we're going to close them up and that that gives a slightly different feeling than than squeezing the anal sphincter. Now, if you get up to squeeze like you don't wanna like pee your pants or like you wanna stop the stream of urine, that will might activate more in the front of the pelvic women who are like, uh, if I could stop the flow of urine, I wouldn't be here. So what else you got? Um, what's really cool is um, in the male literature, this is a study done by Paul Hodges, <laughs> is he found um, that what activated the anterior part um, and the urinary sphincter, the striated urinary sphincter, sphincter the most for men, was a penis or pull your penis in to your body. Now, for women, so when you know I was at a course and it's like, so let's let's think of like other cues and other words. But even if, so I don't have a penis, 
on this call that probably don't have a penis. Even if you don't have a penis, I want you to do that in your brain. Shorten the penis and pull it in. And did you feel anything happen? Because we do have things that are now analogous to the male penis if you are, um, are a female. So I'll sometimes use that. Like, I know it sounds stupid, um, but pretend to draw on your penis and it works and it does feel more anterior for a lot of people. Um, so I'll kind of just, I'll kind of see what, like I said, sometimes it's like the 42nd way of doing it that I've asked them to do where they're like, oh, that? And you're like, that. Um, yeah. So then also, uh, just another, it's a little bit of like, a little bit of a tangent, but so as you're sitting, so if, if you're, if you're sitting, um, I want you to pick the cue that speaks most to your pelvic floor. And I want you to slouch really, yep, really slouch. And, and I want you to give yourself that cue and just pay attention to what you're feeling. So when you squeeze, give yourself that cue, breathe in and breathe out and then let go. We should have felt a contraction, a little hold and a let go. Now, the reason why I say breathe in and breathe out is if you breathe in and out, that's about five seconds. And also you were breathing because another thing people love to do when they're trying to contract their pelvic floors is just basically suck it in. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's not great, but we want to feel the contraction and we want to feel it let go. And that's super important. I think that was another question on the Slido is um, that that yes, for any muscle we're working, you should be able to contract it and let go. There's not a muscle in our body where if I just keep it contracted, it's gonna do much. It might look great um, eventually, but um, like I couldn't get my coat on, like getting a drink of water would be a little weird. It's not very functional. Muscles have to relax so that they can contract. So that's a big yes. It's just as important as a contraction. Um, pelvic floor that cue and we felt where it happened. Now, tall, like, like you're sitting out at a restaurant and you just saw someone looking at you and you're like, oh, what are they looking at? And then you're going to do the exact same cue. And you're going to breathe in and breathe out and let it go. And then did it feel different than when you were slouched? Did it, did it change position? I feel like Karen's miming. <laughs> it feels different. Now what I want you to do is if you can, depending on how you're sitting, really give me like an anterior pelvic tilt, really happy puppy, and then do the exact same thing. And then let it go. And so again, some more EMG work from, from Paul Hodges is that when you're in a posterior pelvic tilt, you tend to activate the posterior portion more, which is fine. And if you're not having problems in the front, if you're having problems activating and maintaining continence in the front, actually increasing that lordosis can favor the front a bit. So this is, that's really awesome when people can feel that difference. Because I want you to think about if you start to leak on your fourth mile of a half marathon, there's no way, no matter how awesome you are, that you're gonna be able to squeeze your pelvic floor for the rest of that race. Like there's just, there's no way. But sometimes if, because remember your pelvic floor is still doing its thing while you're running, is if you're like, well, hold on, when you're at your fourth mile, are you starting to get tired? Or hopefully not if it's a half marathon, but you know, like is something changing in how you're using your body? And can you, when you get to that point, remember to stay tall or lift your tail a little bit, or is there a cue or something they can change that will help them favor the front instead of going about four steps with the contracted pelvic floor and then losing it anyway. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways you can actually make that your intervention is for the issue you're having. And then let's just get it functional. Perfect. And since you brought up running, a question that's been got, gotten a couple of likes on Slido is, how would you approach return to running after pregnancy? Do you have any tips on criteria for progress, time frame? and a recreational runner versus a full-time athlete because i would think the majority of physiotherapists around the world 
are seeing the recreational runner versus the professional or full-time athlete. So first, how would you approach return to running? Any tips for progress? Um, so there, that's going oh, to after, be- a, After pregnancy, sorry. After pregnancy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is where I was really excited. So just last year, um, I'm going to say her name wrong, but Tom Goom, um, Grand Donley and Emma Brockwell, um, published Return to Running Postnatal Guidelines for Health Professionals Managing This Population. And the reason why I was super excited is because even though it was just published last year, it's the first one. Um, there is definitely a lot of um, emotion and feelings about, about women getting back into sport after having a baby. But to be perfectly frank, there's very few actual solid guidelines for recreational or others. Um, so I have not personally had a child, but I will tell you of all the women I've seen over the years, basically doctors are like, mm, it's been six weeks, ease back into it, see how it goes. Um, not really even mentioning if you have a problem, come back so we can figure it out. It's just kind of like, good luck with that. And as a result, what happens is a lot of women don't get back into exercise or they get back into exercise and, um, and kind of freak themselves out because stuff feels different. So to get back to the question of what do I do, actually this, um, this guide from um, Tom and team, really, really helpful, um, I think. And, and it's just basically, it's, um, it does have a series of exercises that I've actually started to use with my postpartum moms to go like, look, if you can do these things without feeling heaviness, you're good, you're good to start easing back into your running program. But get up, get walking, because I'm going to quote Sandy Hilton, and you, like, you can't rest this better. Like just waiting isn't going to make it all go away. Um, but it, it can also be deceiving because, again, with move, you don't feel that heaviness, <laughs> and you don't leak. And so I'm just going to stay right here where everything is fine. Um, so that's obviously not a good option, long-term option um, for a lot of reasons. Um, so, so what do I do? I do look at the patient's goals, <clears throat> their previous running history, and if they're having any options. Um, I recently had a patient who, um, she was runner, exerciser, I saw her after baby number two um, for a bit, some feeling heaviness, that got completely better baby number three came along. So I saw her a bit while she was pregnant um, because she got, I think two thirds of the way through pregnancy before she started to feel that heaviness again, she was still running. Tried to see if we could change that feeling while she was running and she could until about the, when did she start? I think she didn't stop running to her 35th week, which is pretty impressive. Um, but then she wanted to do a half marathon I think it was just three months postpartum, right? So this is like going from having baby to running 13. I think that a lot of people would probably feel that was too soon, too much, too fast, but she was able to do it completely symptom-free. Um, so as she was training um, and she was really fast, she was timing it so that she could get back in time to breastfeed. <laughs> like I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I, that would disqualify me. Like I, there's no way I could run fast enough to make that happen. Um, but she was able to, to work it out where she could perform at her level without symptoms. And I was really happy that I was able to support her in that. She did all the hard work. Um, for general people, recreational, were you a runner before <laughs> or is this completely new? And are you having any symptoms and is there anything you're worried about? Again, a lot of women are worried about giving. It's actually really hard to do a prolapse, to give yourself one. Um, ba babies are a great way to do it. Um, but that's like the risk factors I looked up for something else a couple of years ago. I haven't looked recently. But like really, really heavy prolonged lifting. So not like your CrossFit three days a week, but like your, your physical labor for eight, eight hours, 10 hours a day every day could eventually do it. Also having babies. So like once you get to every baby increases your risk of pelvic organ prolapse, which makes good sense. And that, and that is what it is. Um, so kind of looking at 
what are their risk factors? Are there any? And letting them know that if they feel it more, it doesn't mean they made it worse. They just made it more symptomatic. Got it. Great. All right. So we have time for maybe one or two more questions. And then I'm going to throw it back to Claire because we're coming up onto an hour here. Maybe time for one more. Ah, it's so, what am I going to ask? I think I'm going to go with uh, the gymnasts I work with all believe it's normal to leak a little urine during training or competition. And this is something we talk about a lot. It might be common, but is it normal? You already gave me the answer. What is it, Karen? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the short answer for that is no. Um, or I agree with the question where it is very, very, very common. And it is still, I would say, not normal to leak urine. Um, unfortunately, so if there's any researchers out there who want to get together, let me know. Um, we haven't, we have information on athletes and incontinence, but mostly it's prevalence that it happens a lot in gymnastics, in dancing, in volleyball. Um, there's, there's even some swimmers who have it, right? So there's, there's incontinence across the spectrum, which basically tells me, yep, people have incontinence. Some of, the, um, some of the sports are more likely to have urge incontinence. A lot of them, though, we're looking at stress incontinence. However, for none of the female athletes, have we really had a great study that says, this is what we're finding. We're thinking this is the cause of this incontinence. And we certainly haven't gotten to the point where it's like, and this is what we should be doing for these women in particular. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty curious as to what we would have to do as, as a profession, as, as a team with researchers to figure out what do we need to look at in these athletes, especially the female athletes, because most of these are also, um, they've never had babies, right? So a lot of these athletes are um, nulliparous, and um, so we can't we can't blame them. There's something with how things are working that seem to be the situation. It's not necessarily trauma or anything like that. So what do we need to look at? What do we think is happening? Can we measure it and assess it? And then can we get an intervention? In my brain, obviously something isn't working as well as it could. Mm -hmm. So could something like that Im improve their performance? Even I don't I don't know. I'd like to think so. Yeah, that would but, be an um, interesting study. Yeah, but we, we ultimately don't know. So um, if anyone has any ideas for studies or doing studies, let me know because I can't wait to read them. Um, but I think maybe the first step is to let coaches and parents and young gymnasts know. Very common. Don't be ashamed. Don't let it stop you from doing what you want to do. But also don't just ignore it. Maybe we can figure this out. Great advice. All right. One more question with a short answer, if you can. So, and I'm going to ask this question because I feel like the person who posted this, uh, I think posted this in earnest. So that's why I'm asking this as the last question. So a female patient age 20 years, still bedwetting from her childhood. Otherwise she is normal, no incontinence. So other than this, just while sleeping, she tends to urinate. Any thoughts on this or uh, any place you can direct this person? Yeah, so um, I did, I was like, oh, great question. Um, and, and I did actually do a little research for this specific question. Um, there's a lot of reasons why um, nocturnal enuresis, which is what bedwetting is called um, in the literature, happens. And I think it's really important. Um, so I don't know what kind of tests or studies this person has had done or what other issues they may be having. So things like sleep apnea, is, um, is something that could be related. If there's any medications, any sort of diuretics, any kind of sleeping medications. Again, the fact it's kind of carried on since childhood, I, I would really wonder about uh, the, how, how is the bladder functioning? The fact that it's working fine throughout the day makes me wonder what's changing at night. And I did find a study where it talked about when they look um, compared um, adolescents or adults who are bedwetting, to people who weren't, they did have like um, detrusor overactivity. So like basically like an overactive bladder um, that they could see on the testing. Um, so I would, I would really encourage this person to find a urologist that they trust um, if they haven't already and really to maybe investigate some of those other, other factors um, that could be contributing so that they can get some better sleep and not have that problem anymore. 
Excellent. Excellent. Oh, okay. Claire says we can go for one more question. So I'm going to listen to the boss here. Um, and oh boy, are you ready? Because this is a question that did kind of get a lot of thumbs up. Okay. So we spoke about it briefly before we started. So um, uh, let's see. Uh, treatment of non-specific pelvic girdle pain not related to pregnancy. Which strategy with no susceptive pain mechanisms and which strategy with non-nociceptive pain mechanisms would you incorporate with this patient? Okay, so um, I would say in the clinic, it's it can be pretty hard. Like I don't know how I would distinguish between nociceptive and, and non-nociceptive or what even like non-nociceptive might be if we're talking more central issues or um, stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but honestly, I would just look at, so in um, Kathleen Sluka has a great book about um, looking at the different types of pain or the different categories of pain and the most effective medications for it, right? So we're really good in pharmacology. Like if you're having like this inflammatory process and an anti-inflammatory should help. If you're having neuropathic pain, you want a drug that addresses that. When we get into like physical therapy interventions, what's really cool is exercise is in all the categories. And it's one of the things we have the best evidence for. Um, so regardless of pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy or not pregnancy, and regardless of how it may have been labeled by somebody else, is I would, I would mostly wanna know, when did the pain start? Is there anything that makes it better, anything that makes it worse, and see if I could find a movement or change something for that person, um, or that made me sound like I was going to do a whole lot of work, if I could find something for that person to change for themselves, um, to have that hurt less and have them, I, tend, I would tend to keep it simple, mostly because in the clinic, again, we could do a lot of special tests that might say, oh, nope, they definitely hurt there. But it's still, if we're looking at what's going to be an effective intervention, there that, that, that patient's going to tell me what that is. Sorry, it would help if I unmute myself. So it looks like we have time for one more. And I, I really, Claire's not, Claire did not pop up yet. So we've got time for one more. And then there we're going to, and then we're wrapping it up, I promise. So stroke patients, dementia patients. Oh, wait, oh, we just got the. Christmas. Oh, no. Go. Yes, no? It's a super short answer if you want, Claire. Super short answer? Okay. So stroke okay. or dementia patients with urinary incontinence, any useful ideas for their rehab program? Yes. So I would get an idea of their bladder habits, their bowel habits, their fluid intake, um, because a lot of that's going to end up being outside caregiver help. Um, with, a, with a stroke, it's much different. It depends on the severity and where it is and all of that. But for people with dementia, is if you just get that like if you can prompt them or take them to the toilet a lot of the times that will take care of the incontinence um, it's not a matter of like kegel exercises it's more management all right sarah thank you so much i'm gonna throw it back over to claire to wrap things up Thank you both for a wonderful and insightful discussion, Sarah and Karen. Um, so many practical tips and pointers for the clinician, especially. I was loving learning about all of the things that I could take to the clinic. So I hope our audience uh, find those practical tips really helpful. As always, the link to this live chat will stay up on our Facebook page and we'll share it across our other social media channels. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. You can also follow us here on Facebook. Please share this chat with your friends, with family, colleagues, anyone who you think might find it helpful. And if you like JOSPT Asks, please be sure to tell people about, it, about what we're doing so they can find us here. Please join us next week when we host our special guest, Professor Laurie Mishner from the University of Southern California. Laurie's going to be answering questions on managing shoulder pain. We'll be here live on Wednesday next week. So Wednesday, April the 8th at 9am Pacific. So that's noon if you're on the east coast of the US. It's 5pm if you're in the UK and it's 6pm if you're in Europe. Before we sign off for the evening, there's also a really important campaign that I'd like to draw your attention to, and it's one that we at JOSVT are supporting, and it's Get Us PPE. So we're supporting this organisation in their quest to buy as much 
uh, to buy much needed personal protective equipment for frontline health workers who are um, helping us all in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. So if you'd like to support Get Us PPE, please visit their website, www.getusppe.org, G-E-T-U-S-P-P-E.org. As always, thanks so much for joining us on this JOSBT Asks live chat and we'll speak to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and don't forget to follow us on social media.